Hey everybody, this is Ted Wynn, and I'm super excited that on today's episode of Perspective with Ted Wynn, we have licensed professional counselor, Brittany Phillips. We're going to talk about uh, mental health, mental illness, trauma, what people should do. We're going to try to debunk myths around mental health um, and therapy and dig into what you need to do to make sure that you are your best self. Please stay tuned, watch it, listen to it, like it, and share it. Again, this is Ted Wynn with Perspective. Hi, everybody. Um, thank you for joining us today. I am Ted Wynn, and I am so excited, so honored to have uh, on today on our podcast, Perspective, uh, Brittany Phillips. Brittany is an LPC, which is a licensed professional professional counselor. Hey. <laughs> and um, we want to have a, a conversation about um, mental health, mental wellness, the importance of therapy or counseling, um, talking through issues that have happened in people's lives that have been traumatic or stressful or have caused them to have to adjust in certain ways. Um, and what the processes are for that. There is um, a lot of, I think, misunderstanding. There's not a lot of information. Some people are unclear about what this means, what it is. Do I need it? You know, what does it mean? Am I crazy <laughs> if I go see a counselor? Um, and so we want to dispel some of those myths and give people good, solid science-based information uh, to help them. So hi, Brittany. Hey, Ted. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I want to just start by asking you, um, to define for people what mental health is? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, a lot of times when we hear the word mental health, we kind of think of mental illness and kind of use those words synonymously and exchange them when they mm -hmm. are completely different things, right? So mm -hmm. mental health is just like if I were to say, hey, how's your physical health doing, right? Mm -hmm. um, we talk about mental health, meaning your thoughts, your emotions, your feelings, the way that you view the world. Um, all of those things are kind of encompassed in our mental health. And we all have mental health, um, mm -hmm. just like we have physical health. And so that's kind of how I de define mental health is kind of our thoughts, feelings, our emotions, our actions, um, and the way that we view the world and view ourselves as well. Uh, great. So, so to that point, what are things, when someone is taking care of their mental health, what does that look like? I know, and I don't mean I, I don't mean to suggest that it can only look one way, but what would that look like if people are doing things to take care of their mental health? I think one thing, and I always say this, I have a little tagline that I say, feel your feelings, right? So mm -hmm. people think that mental health is uh, when you're taking care of it, that you're not going to experience any um, adverse emotions or reactions or things of like things of that nature have unhappy moments. And that's not true, right? We're mm -hmm. all going to experience ups and downs, but it's the way that you handle that. It's the way that you experience that. It's what do you, how do you act when you feel angry? Mm -hmm. We're going to have anger, but what do you do when you feel angry? Do you cuss mm -hmm. out your partner? Do you hit <laughs> your children? You know, what are those things that you do? How do you process the anger when you experience grief? We all experience loss. Mm -hmm. How do you move through that? Do you experience more denial and kind of act like it doesn't happen? Do you kind of dissociate and kind of numb yourself out or use substances to kind of numb those feelings mm -hmm. versus kind of sitting with the uncomfortable feelings and processing through that, actually 
crying, right? Crying is a healthy emotion. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of us have received messages either from family, from society, that it's not okay to cry, especially for men. Yes. That, you know, it's crying is weak. And when we're taking care of our mental health, um, we understand that crying is not weak. It's part of uh, it's almost like a cleansing process. Like you get up and take a shower every day, hopefully. <laughs> uh, you know, crying is like cleansing for your soul, like, right? Letting, yes. letting some of that stuff release from you. Um, so those are some ways that it can look like when you're taking care of your mental health. So to that point, you said, feel your feelings. I really love that. And I just, I was having a conversation recently with someone about that exactly, because there is this kind of idea, especially in faith-based spaces, mm -hmm. um, or, you know, people are want to promote this idea that we should always be, you know, up and positive. And mm -hmm. while I think maybe that's a cool kind of, well, I don't even know if it's a cool thing to, a goal. I don't know. Um, okay. Yeah. So I didn't think so, but, but it, it doesn't, it's not based in the reality that life happens and we have a range of emotions and we have those emotions for a reason. Like you need to be able to process to your point, grief and sadness and happiness and, you know, joy and loss and whatever else you're dealing with. Um, and I think sometimes we, especially in the, in the social media age, we are so focused on everybody's post is always like, I'm up, I'm winning, I'm, you know, I'm happy. And that's just not the lived reality of human beings. We have a range of emotions. And so yeah. is it, um, I don't want to define it, but what do you think about this idea of putting forward uh, an image of always being up. Like there's a song that says, all I do is win, 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 no matter what. <laughs> well, no, that's not true, actually. Sometimes right. you lose. Sometimes <laughs> I lose, right. I hate that toxic positivity, right? I'm sure if- Toxic positivity. Just mm. having this, always finding the silver lining on, on things. And sometimes there is no silver lining. And you talked about in the faith-based um, spaces where we always find a re there's a reason for everything. Sometimes mm. there's not a reason for everything. Right. Mm -hmm. um, especially when we talk about heinous traumas and things that have happened to us, there's not a reason why that happened other than there was an evil person that did that to us. Um, <laughs> and even if you look at the Bible, like everything isn't positive. It's full of violence and trauma and war. Mm -hmm. And the Psalms, David is talking about how long, oh Lord, do I have to, you know, people are experiencing emotions even in the Bible. So if you really read mm -hmm. the Bible, you'll see a range of emotions. So I don't know why we kind of zero in on always having to win and, you know, having these positive affirmations and making these declarations. Those are great things. I think those are great tools sure. that we can use, right? Sure. But sure. we also have to be able to sit with the uncomfortableness of mm -hmm. life, sit mm -hmm. with the um, uncertainty, sitting in the middle of the winning and the losing, right? We're not, it's always not one end or the other. Sometimes you're kind of in the middle where you're just uncertain. And you don't know what tomorrow looks like. Mm -hmm. And that's okay to be in that space if you're in that space, not knowing what the next day looks like, um, but being comfortable with the uncomfortable. Yeah, I, I think um, when you talk about um, toxic positivity, I've not heard that before. I think it's a really great phrase. Um, and you look at what people are dealing with and what they're going through, um, I do wonder sometimes, you know, how we, why we do that, why we only focus on this. Like when you say there's not an upside to everything, like, and the danger in that is that then people try to say, well, what was the silver lining in like enslaving Africans? <laughs> like what? Mm -hmm. What's a silver lining in the Holocaust? There is none. 
is right. Like, there's no there's no silver lining in in you know a, a seven year old child being raped or molested. Like yeah. there just isn't. It's just bad, and we don't have to create some equal opposite side of you know yeah. whatever. So what do you do? I don't want to get you in trouble. But hey, this is what we do. So, what do you do? And people say, you know, all things work together for good, right? And and I'm and I I mean, and I don't mean to alienate people who are not Christian because some people are mm-hmm. Jewish or Muslim or Hindu or whatever. So we want everybody to feel included. But yeah. as a kind of uh, talking point or a, a, a space to build on, when people have this idea that's based in their kind of religious faith and ideology and even their religious writings, that everything is working towards some good goal do we find that factual when there are these traumatic situations? You are going to get me in trouble. Um, Cause I'm no theologian. So I, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't know if I have an answer to that. That would be accurate. Okay. Um, but what I do. Ooh, this well, let me ask, let me do Let me ask you this way. So as a counselor, mm-hmm. if someone comes to you and says, Hey, you know, I, I've had these things happen to me that are bad. Like I was sexually assaulted. Mm-hmm. Would you, but they say, but I'm, but I was told, you know, from my faith leader that even that is like working towards some positive goal. Like, what? how would you advise that person? Yeah, I've heard, had a client tell me like, you know, I know that this happened and um, it made me stronger. And I always try to reframe it and say that didn't make you stronger. Right. It's mm. what you did after it that made you stronger. So we don't mm. want to attribute the strength to the trauma. Trauma mm. doesn't make us stronger. Trauma breaks us down. Trauma mm-hmm. changes our biology. It changes our brain, the way our neurobiology works. So mm-hmm. trauma doesn't make us stronger, but it's the resilience that you have. It's the different strengths and um, support systems that you have around you that made you stronger. So I try to reframe it and take the power away from the trauma because the trauma, yeah. it's not that powerful to make us stronger. It breaks us down, but it's what we do afterwards. I love that. So when we talk about trauma, um, and if we can zero in specifically on acts of violence, right, that mm-hmm. happen. I, I've been having conversations with folks, and and I guess in some ways I'm taken aback by the ways in which we normalize um, and romanticize violence in America, right? Maybe in other countries too, but this is where we live. Mm-hmm. So when we think about um, everything from, you know, movies to songs to you know, people wearing a badge of honor about the fact that, you know, I'll beat you up. Like, (laughs) you know, like, I'll fight you. I'll cuss you out. Like, and people celebrate that. Like, they say it like it's a thing to be proud of. And I'm like, with all the, like, school shootings and road rage and, like, all these other things where we are expressing violence in these ways that we see, what do we do about that? And I'm not asking you to, you know, give me like a solution, but how do you think we as a society should be addressing, maybe even on smaller, more nuclear levels inside of our families and friends, mm-hmm. how should we be talking about violence? Yeah, I think it, like you said, it starts in that small microcosm of the home, starting with families. And how do we... I think it starts with just how do we express anger, like starting at the very Mm. elementary level of what does anger look like? I always start whenever I work with kids, I don't work with kids anymore because that's kids. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The thing about kids is I'm getting on a sidetrack now. The thing about kids is parents bring their kids to therapy and say, here, fix my child when the problem is really with the parents. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can't fix a child without fixing you first. Well, not yes. that I can fix him, but you get the point. Yes. But it goes back to how is anger expressed in the home, right? 
So when mom is upset, how does she show that? And what is the mm -hmm. kid watching? What are they seeing? What is mm -hmm. being modeled for them in their home, their church, their community? Mm -hmm. um, I think that's where we start with how we change the, the bigger level of violence and how it's expressed in the community. How is anger expressed at home? And um, yeah, like even when I get in trouble, how am I disciplined? How does mom show her disapproval or dad show his disapproval or grandma show their disapproval with me or mm -hmm. how do they correct me? Um, mm -hmm. You know, and that kind of gets into the whole spanking piece of, you know, what which is the next thing I was going to talk to you about. Okay. <laughs> so, so let's, I do want to definitely want to talk about corporal punishment. Um, there's been a lot of conversation on social media about yeah. corporal punishment. Do I whip my kids? Do I not whip my kids? Like, mm -hmm. well, I didn't really whip them. I only just hit them a little bit and it wasn't too hard. And you know, it's just yeah. two licks. It wasn't 20 licks. Okay. All right. Uh, um, so I, I grew up probably like a lot of folks, um, you know, being whipped. Um, I, I wasn't whipped a lot. Um, but they were whippings and they were violent um, and they put welts on me and, you know, the whole nine. And my mom and I have talked about this and I've talked about it with my family. So this is not something they don't know I'm going to talk about. <laughs> and I recently had a conversation with my mother, my grandmother, my uncle about what that looked like and how I think, you know, um, it's a violent act. I said, I think about things in very literal ways. Yeah. So you are literally an adult intentionally inflicting pain on yeah. a child in the name of discipline. Yeah. And when I really think about it on a literal level, it's, it's really jarring mm -hmm. that that has been accepted. And even in some ways labeled love, like mm -hmm. it's really strange to me. And so my grandmother said, well, you know, I don't feel like my children as a result of being whipped, are violent or were violent, you know, they've not been, you know, in prison and all that. And I was like, well, all your children whip their children. So they are violent. Yeah, right? <laughs> and, and I don't think, and I want to be fair. This is not about maligning or indicting folks. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, they did what they thought was right, I guess. And yeah. what they felt was effective and they used whatever means they felt were going to get the job done. But it doesn't mean we can't have conversation and examine the behavior yeah. and then move in a different direction if we feel like something else is better. So exactly. what are your thoughts on corporal punishment? Oh, there's so many of them. <laughs> <laughs> I think one thing, um, like, like the comment you said, people like, well, my kids turned out okay, or I turned out okay. Mm -hmm. um, I turned out fine. And it's like, well, fine is subjective. What, let's define what fine means. Does that mean they're successful? Successful mm -hmm. doesn't mean that they're mentally healthy at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes the negative effects of like physical punishment may not be apparent for some time, right? It may not show up immediately. Um, it There may be some indirect changes that happen. Um mm with the child or with the teen or whatever. Um, it changes the way that children view themselves. It changes the way that they view others. It changes mm. the way that they view the world. Um, mm. It kind of, it, it, um, it can shape the way that they, they interact in relationships when they're older. Um, mm. It's also been, there's tons of research that shows it's been associated with increased aggression um, antisocial behaviors, mm -hmm. um, as well as mental health disorders, like depression and anxiety disorders, mm. um, can even develop PTSD, depending on how severe the spanking is and how often the spanking happens. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of, um, 
things that happen because of corporal punishment. I think it's legalized crime against children that needs to be uh, outlawed. There's a couple countries that have, quite a few countries that have outlawed it in the home and obviously yeah. in the schools it's been outlawed. Um, but I think we need to move kind of more towards that direction. But it starts with the education piece of what are the effects of corporal punishment? And mm -hmm. I think that's what we're talking about now. Yeah, I think I think so. And I do think that I, I, I was reading that um, children who are physically disciplined or whipped um, statistically are more violent in their lives than children who aren't. I saw a dialogue happening. <clears throat> Lord, I'm all saying names, but I saw a dialogue happening a few years ago online between um, John Legend and Roland Martin about mm -hmm. this. And it was fascinating to me because Roland Martin was basically supportive of corporal punishment and John Legend asked him, is there any data that you can point to that shows that children who are whipped behave better than children who aren't? And he didn't cite any data. He just kind of regurgitated his same point about that's what's wrong with these kids now. They need to be whipped and they don't have any respect and there's, you know, all this other stuff. And John posed the question again, like, Mm -hmm. What what are you basing this on? Like, what is yeah. the, the and he he really couldn't answer that. And that was the first time I had seen someone really suggest like the to to speak to the science behind this or the research I should say behind mm -hmm. how children who are whipped behave and mm -hmm. in later in life and mm -hmm. how those who aren't behave. And I do think that's so striking that we're no pun intended uh that we're having that 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 is what the research shows um so what do you feel like are better ways to educate correct discipline our children well i think first we have to understand like what are what are the behaviors that we're trying to extinguish with spanking right well what's the point of a spanking i think mm. we have to understand that behavior is communication so mm -hmm. let's start with what is my child trying to communicate to me First of mm -hmm. all, so I think we have to understand, like, what is this unwanted behavior? What are they trying to communicate? Um, and once we get an understanding of that, we need to see, OK, is this a, uh, a this skills deficit? Is my child doing this behavior because they're lacking a skill? Is there an un, uh, unmet need that they have that they're trying to express to me? And then mm -hmm. how do I get to the root of that? Right. Because spanking, we can't punish out behavior. It doesn't work. Um, research shows it doesn't work. If it worked, you would spank once and you would never have to spank again. So right. the fact <laughs> is it doesn't work and we got to continue to do it. So we have to find other ways to do it. But I think it first starts with us as parents or caregivers examining, you know, what, what is this child really trying to tell me? Um, and find out, like I said, is this an unmet need or is this a skills deficit? Um, are they acting out in school because the work is boring or because they don't understand the work. They Maybe they mm -hmm. are feeling embarrassed because of something that's happening. I can mm -hmm. spank them all day. They're still not going to understand the work. They're still going to be the class clown and it's going to be this continual cycle. But now their self-esteem is going to be lowered because I really don't understand what's happening. Nobody's finding out this need and mm -hmm. I'm getting punished because of it. So now I feel even more dumb and stupid and it's just the cycle that will continue. So um, I think it starts with our, these caregivers doing their own internal work and working on, okay, how do I manage my anger, my frustration with this child mm -hmm. to really find out what's happening. Um, and then seeking help, you know, getting mm. with the counselor, putting your child in therapy. I just had a baby about seven weeks ago. 
But yeah. my child, as soon as she's three, she's going to be in play therapy. Not because I, anything's wrong with her, because I want her to have a safe space to express mm-hmm. what's happening in her inner world. Right. And a place, place to process that. And then even for me, even though I'm a therapist, I don't have all the answers. I want to mm-hmm. talk to another licensed professional and say, hey, OK, what are some things or maybe what are some ways that I'm parenting that's not working with this child's personality or what mm-hmm. can I do? That's, you know, more mm-hmm. conducive to the way that she thinks or the way that she behaves. Um, but that takes us humbling ourselves and saying, hey, even as caregivers, we don't have all the answers. Yeah, I think that's really important. Um, I, I try to. Um, one of the things I've tried to focus on with with, with my nephews, um, I spent a lot of time with them as they were growing up, was to do things that would helpfully help them to think. Yeah. to make them critical thinkers. I have one nephew who was about, um, I don't know, maybe six or seven at the time. He was watching television. His mom came downstairs and said, hey, go do such and such. And she went outside. And he was like, okay. So she came back in <laughs> 20 minutes later, and he was still sitting there watching television. Mm-hmm. So she was like, didn't I tell you? So he got up, and I stopped him. I said, hey, 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 come here, come here for a second. Let me talk to you. I want to ask you a question. Like, Why? Your mom asked you to do something. You didn't do it when she asked you to do it. Why did you choose to ignore what she asked you to do in order to do what you were, what you were doing at the time? And he sat there and he, you know, he did what most kids do. And he was like, mm-hmm. and I was like, mm-hmm. I was like, no, actually, you're the only one who does know. Mm-hmm. So let's figure out. Let's think about it. Let's talk through it. Let's sort out why you ignored an authority figure and you decided to do what you wanted to do in that moment. And that, instead of hitting him, that made him think about it. Yeah. And so as he got older, you know, he's, he's developed a lot of respect for his mother, for people in his life. And we've not really had to have a lot of those conversations as he grew up because we started him to thinking about the choices he was making and why he was making those choices as a really young child. And I think that can be helpful. Absolutely. And I think also parents have to understand, like, what developmental stage is my child at? So I don't know what your nephew was at that time, but let's say you're talking to an eight-year-old who's playing a video game and you say, hey, I need you to go take the trash out. And you walk away and 20 minutes later, the trash is not taken out. Well, Mm -hmm. number one, he was playing a video game. He was distracted and he's Mm -hmm. eight years old. You didn't give really specific instructions. Like I need Mm -hmm. you to stop playing the video game now, take the trash out in the next five, or you can have five more minutes on the video game and then take the trash out. You have to have a very concrete instruction. Mm -hmm. The younger Mm -hmm. children are right. Mm -hmm. When they get a little bit older as teens, it can be less, but as parents, we have to realize like what developmental stage are they at? What chunks of information can they take? How specific do I need to be with what I'm mm-hmm. asking of them? So it takes a lot more responsibility on us as parents mm-hmm. to kind of educate ourselves about our children, where they are, what can they, what can their brain process? What, you know, how developed is their prefrontal cortex? What can they, you know, take <laughs> in and things like that. So I think, yeah, it's a lot of responsibility is, is going to fall back on the parent because a lot of times we get frustrated about things that maybe we just don't understand. Like maybe my child is not capable of doing what I'm asking them to do at this time or the mm-hmm. way that I'm asking them to do it. Yeah, I think that's great. So I, I want to pivot a bit and talk about um, <clears throat> adults, right, and the trauma that has happened to us and specifically move to an area that is um, uh, sensitive for a lot of people and that is domestic abuse. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see lots of episodes of that happening in the media, um, posts on Instagram or 
Twitter videos, all this stuff is out there, movies about it. Um, what do you, what part do you think uh, trauma plays in whatever space is created in a person who enacts abuse, domestic abuse on their partner? And I want to be clear, that's not always men, that sometimes women are domestic abusers Absolutely. as well. So what do you feel like trauma plays a part in that? And if so, how? Yeah, um, trauma definitely can play a part in that. And I think so from some of the research that I've seen, now, let me just say this as a disclaimer. I, I'm As a therapist, there are people that have like specialties, right? Domestic mm -hmm. violence is not something that I specialize in. There okay. are people that like really specialize in this area. So I, I'm not going to be too specific, but I can give you some general information. And I know that, you know, uh, the research shows that domestic those that are have a, are abusers in domestic violence have a history of their own traumatic past, um, mm -hmm. have a, more of a history of having PTSD or depression themselves. And, you know, they just don't know how to process their feelings of anger. When we talk about domestic mm -hmm. violence, it, it's usually not just about anger, but it's more about that power and control. So mm -hmm. what did they experience in their past where they lacked power and control that now they're trying to enact it over the person that they're in this intimate relationship with? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think trauma definitely plays a huge part in that, having unprocessed trauma themselves that they have not processed. And so now they're just kind of replaying out some of those um, emotions and experiences that they've had. So when we when we see that and then we see persons uh, who are being abused and stay in those relationships for, mm -hmm. you know, extended periods of time, yeah. do we associate they're staying there with their own trauma or what do we associate that with? Yeah, most men or women, uh, and we know that statistically more, it's more women than men, but mm -hmm. those uh, from the research, they've studied more women, but they have experienced usually uh, sexual abuse, emotional abuse in their past. They've uh, had PTSD, um, mm -hmm. physical abuse as well. These mm -hmm. things uh, definitely contribute to the fact of them saying it because because of the trauma that has lowered their own self-esteem and their self-efficacy to mm -hmm. you know believe in themselves and have, feel empowered. A lot of times their own support systems are not in place. So they don't have other people that they can lean on when they need to escape, right? Mm -hmm. This person is probably taking away some of their financial control. Um, and mm. so they have no resources. And so they have to stay, you know? Sometimes if they have children, it's like, do I leave and have nothing and have my children out in the cold or do I stay and have my children protected? Most women make the best decision to protect their children, even though it may put themselves and their children in danger in the end. I've, I've seen that um, going back some generations, even in my own family, where, you know, you have a relative that has, you know, lots of children, yep. no skill set. Yes. Um, especially back then, you know, no skill set, no money, and mm -hmm. you know, is feeling trapped in a way. And yeah. this was a situation, uh, not to be, I don't want to, you know, put people's names to things, um, mm -hmm. but but a situation where one of the the relative's children was being molested by the stepfather. Um, mm -hmm. <clears throat> the relative was aware, mm -hmm. didn't really do much to stop it, and. As a result, obviously the child, you know, grew up and experienced a lot of really, I mean, was really messed up for the rest of her life. Obviously. Yeah. Um, and that type of situation is really hard to mm -hmm. to to think about. You know, it, um, it's painful to think about someone yeah. being 
feeling that way and then not feeling protected from your mother yeah. um, in that situation. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, I, I mean, I assume it could still be the same today in terms of your, the financial component you talked about. Um, what would you say to someone who is in that situation where they're feeling they're, they're being abused and they're feeling trapped um, and feeling like they don't have an out or they don't have a, you know, the means to take care of themselves or their children? What should yeah. they do? I would say, re and it's hard to say to say reach out without giving you something specific to reach out to, right? Because <laughs> mm -hmm. you don't have access to to others, and it depends on how um, intense the domestic violence is. Like, mm -hmm. do you get to go to the grocery store? Like, are you trapped in your home? Like, do you have access to other people? I would reach mm -hmm. out to whoever you have access to, um, and let them know what's happening inside of your home. Let them know that you and your children need help. Um, as embarrassing as it can be, a lot of times it feel very helpless. I can't imagine um, just with the example that you use the, with the mother um, probably feeling so helpless. And a lot of times on the outside, we can look and say, how can a mother not protect that child? Mm -hmm. um, and as a mother now, I could say, I, I think like, oh, how can a mother not protect that child? But then if I put myself in their shoes and say, hmm, I wonder what sense of hopelessness and helplessness they have wanting to protect your child. I don't believe that, that person didn't want to. They probably didn't know how. They were probably mm -hmm. so scared to. When we understand how trauma affects our brain, and I won't get mm -hmm. into that to another podcast, but trauma uh, really affects our brain and um, affects our decision-making ability. That's in our prefrontal cortex. It helps, mm -hmm. it um, kind of shrinks away the ability to make logical decisions and wise decisions. Mm -hmm. The part of our brain that's kind of enlarged because of the trauma we experience is our limbic system, which is our emotional brain. Um, there's a part of our brain called the amygdala, which is our fight, flight, and freeze, right? Mm -hmm. so we kind of live in the survival mode where we're not able to think ahead. We're not able to plan. We're not mm -hmm. able to um, do things like other people would do, like from the outside looking in, I say, oh, I would do this X, Y, and Z. I would get my child. I would call this person. I would run away when he's not home. But a person that's in that trauma, that part of their brain is not even online. They can't even access mm -hmm. the the, uh, the parts of their brain to do that. So they just stay stuck in survival mode. They're trying to figure out how to get through the next minute. How do I get through the next beating? How do I feed my kids the next hour? They're not able to think ahead. So I think we have to take away some of our judgment that we have of those that are being abused and are in those situations yeah. and really kind of be aware of the signs and the symptoms, like, you know, yeah. kind of being aware of what's happening with uh, in, in families. And sometimes it's black people that's not my business. That's not my family. I don't want to get involved. I don't want to get involved in their marriage. But I think it's <laughs> ability as a community to kind of get involved, especially when children are involved. We got to yes. get involved with other people, as uncomfortable as it make them, may make them feel. Yeah, that's wow. That's like, that's a lot. Like, that's really right, interesting. <laughs> yeah, but that's interesting because I, I've had many conversations with friends and, you know, we will, we will know of or discuss like somebody's having a situation and people, they're so you know, quick to say, well, I, I don't understand why they're doing this. Why don't they do that? I'm, you know, it's just not being empathetic at all. Just like, unless you've lived through that type mm -hmm. of situation, you don't know what you will do. You don't know, you don't you know do. how you'll respond, you know, and, and I think sometimes, many times we also divorce many years of that person's life that led to where they are right now. Yes. So when like they just woke up at 23, that was at a perfectly fine life and then all of a sudden just got an abusive relationship and they can't they won't yeah. leave like that's not how it works like yeah. these people have gone through things their entire life yes. and now they're here it's a culmination of things and i don't think we give 
enough credence to, you know, the 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 total the totality of someone's yeah. lived experience that shapes their decision making or to your point inability to make decisions. So are we talking about like physical physical it changes or alterations to the brain or are we just talking about not being able to no read? physical alterations to the brain yeah there's neuro neurobiological effects to the brain where it changes the structure of our brain. So parts wow. of our brain that should be functioning in a certain way are diminished. Going back to the spanking piece, there's a correlation between domestic violence and spanking, right? So those children that are spanked are more likely to end up in a domestic violence relationship. Because like you said, I'm doing this because I love you. I'm hitting mm. you because I love you. And so mm-hmm. now I come up, I grow up with this message of, okay, sometimes love hurts. And that's that my parents love me. So now I'm in a relationship with a man who says, or a woman who says that they love me and they're physically hurting me. Well, it makes sense because, yeah, sometimes in my childhood that hurt, but they did it because they loved me and it's for my good. And so now you have this internal message that that happened. So we need to circle back around to how are we disciplining and, you know, teaching and what messages are we giving to our children? And then even for abusers, right? Uh, it's for those who were spanked as children that become abusers, there was a correlation because they associate um, power and control with hitting, with physical violence. And so mm-hmm. if I want to get my way, I need to physically do something, right? My parents mm-hmm. got away by, you know, hitting me, so I can get in my way by hitting this person. Mm-hmm. So yeah, kind of all. That's, that's so important, I think, because when I'm having conversations about, like, if I, if I see people, like, I don't watch fight videos. Um, all of my friends know not to send me fight videos. I don't want to see it. Like, I, can't I, take it. I yeah, I don't want to see that because I mean, first of all, it is so. Uh, I don't know. I interpret it as barbaric in a way. Yes, yes. Like that, people are not able to use words and communicate their thoughts in a mm-hmm. way that doesn't, you know, doesn't put you in a space where you need to hit somebody. Because I'm like, what does that do actually? Like, yeah. if you're trying to communicate something, if you're trying to have an understanding, yeah. like. How does punching someone help with that? Like there was just a situation that happened online. Um, well, not online. I saw it. Somebody said, the thing happened on TMZ with Jason Derulo, and there was a fight, and somebody called him Usher, a fake Usher, and then he like hit them, like he leaped past the people, and was like, <laughs> and I'm watching, like, what's happening? Like, we don't, don't understand. Like, how does that make one? I don't understand. I don't know the context. To be fair. Yeah. Not that it, for me, not that it would matter, but yeah. the fact that we, again, as I said earlier, we have so normalized violence in a way. And then mm-hmm. people look at those videos and there is no overwhelming sense of this shouldn't be happening. How can we move to a place where we see less of this? It's like celebratory. It's like, let everybody look at it like, ooh, yeah. and, you know, it's, it's almost mm-hmm. like commentating on like it's a sport or something. Yeah. Well, we have boxing. <laughs> we won't talk about that. Okay. I don't. Okay. I don't understand. Because I'll be honest. I don't watch boxing for that same reason. I think it's just it's so violent. But I will say this. So you know, people might call me a bit of a hypocrite, but I do love football. <laughs> and football is very violent. <laughs> CTE and a whole bunch of other stuff. Yeah, exactly. like a different show. <laughs> <laughs> so, so in the in the last thing I want to talk to you about is there have been some situations that we're talking about domestic abuse. There was a situation of uh, a murder suicide that happened um, not long ago with a young lady named Jeanette Gallagos and a rapper named Jay 
stash. Mm-hmm. And he and she were dating for about a year, um, based mm-hmm. on what I read. Um, he killed her in front of her three children. Mm-hmm. And then um, he, he died by suicide. He took his own life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what, what do we... I guess the question really is, like, how how can we learn from that type of situation? What should be our takeaway so as to help people to not have this experience? Yeah, I think it goes back to kind of how we started, a full circle moment of taking care of our mental health. And, you know, when, when we look at murder suicides, there's usually a... a, a a common thread of untreated mental illness with the person mm-hmm. that does that, that could, I don't want to say commits, that does that act, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and usually it's depression. There's untreated depression that is in that person. And it's mm-hmm. usually men that we see that are the ones, perpetrators of that act. Sure. And um, so I think it starts with, you know, destigmatizing mental health, destigmatizing mental illness, mm-hmm. um, talking about how common it is for men to experience depression mm-hmm. and normalizing, getting help for that, taking medication if needed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, really treating it as a physical illness, as just as if I broke my leg and I go put a cast on it and I take ibuprofen to help with the, with the pain. The same if I'm having pain in my brain, right? If mm-hmm. I'm experiencing uh, moments of sadness um, that last for more than two weeks at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not normal. It's okay to have sadness, but if I'm experiencing sadness for more than three days a week for a longer period of two weeks at a time, mm-hmm. you know, some bouts of depression right there. Um, so normalizing that and um, getting help and then noticing the signs in the people around you, right? Mm-hmm. I'm sure that there were some signs in people around them that noticed that things were not okay with him or that relationship. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that there was some domestic violence in that relationship. Usually with murder suicides, it comes from a domestic violence relationship, not just like, I wake up one day, I don't like you, I'm gonna kill you and kill myself. Um, so <laughs> yeah, he, he had been charged with domestic violence in another relationship okay. prior to. Oh, okay. Well, that's yep. a huge red flag right there. Huge yeah. red flag. And so I'm sure that there were some, especially since there were children involved, there had to be some family members that maybe saw some things. But once again, like we said, if it's not our family, we don't kind of want to get in people's business. I think this is a time where we got to start getting in people's business mm-hmm. when it comes to mental health. We got to kind of involve ourselves for the sake of their livelihood and for the children. If if we, if someone, if, if you meet a person and you find out that this person has uh, being abusive inside of a relationship and they say, well, that was a long time ago or that was whatever. Like, is like, is that somebody you should date or is there a point where you feel like it's okay to date a person who has done that in the past? I need to see what work they have done. <laughs> like, <laughs> don't, don't I used to do that. I don't do it no more. Did you go to therapy for that? Like, did you have anger management? Mm-hmm. How do you, how do you just stop? Cause that's not something you just kind of be like, oh, I just stopped hitting women or I just stopped hitting my, because my... I'm going to piss you off one on. day. You might knock me upside my head. You know what I mean? So I need right. to know what type of work have you done? Like, you know, what led you to, to behaving that way? And then how did you kind of undo some of the thoughts that you had that made you think that was okay the first time? Is that a I question? I personally like... get in a relationship with somebody. 
Gotcha. What'd you say? Is that a fair question? Like, should women ask men, like, have you have have you <laughs> have you ever beat up your girl? Why not? <laughs> <laughs> they probably wouldn't tell the truth, but first date. All right, so I want to just know: Have you ever beat up your girlfriends in the past? You ever hit your girlfriends? Like, if I do a, if I, I do a search, Trent, if something ever happens, I said, Trent, if something ever happens to you, I said, I'm probably never gonna date and get married again. But if I were to date, they would, we wouldn't make it past the second date. Say, like, this woman is crazy. I'm coming in with the whole psychological <laughs> review and asking your childhood traumas. Have you experienced this in your life? Have you ever hit? This- I, absolutely, and I need to know. I'm not mad at that. No, I'm not mad at that. There, there was, um, you know, that case happened, and then there was a, there was another case. Um, a guy named uh, Raji Black, hmm. who he he killed his pregnant ex girlfriend. Hmm. Uh, her name is Tara Labang. He then drove, I think, about thirty miles in Maryland um, to his ex-wife's house, Wendy Natalie Black. And then before he went in, before he knocked on the door, he live streamed himself Mm. saying, I just did this and now I'm about to do this. I never thought I would be that guy is what he said. Um, He He confessed to the murder on live stream? Yeah, before he committed the second one. He, he had already committed the first one with his pregnant ex-girlfriend. And he said, I'm basically, I'm about to go and kill my ex-wife because she's the reason I'm in this situation. So a little more detail, he, mm. there was obviously some custody battle with the ex-wife. Mm-hmm. And th- what I read was he, there had been allegations made about, you know, inappropriate uh, dealings with his children, like, you know, sexual abuse okay. or molestation or something. He was obviously saying that wasn't true. And he said that she was doing that in order to maintain custody and keep him from seeing his children. So the ex-girlfriend, per him, floated the idea of like, you're not going to, I'm not going to let you see your child. Mm. That was obviously a trigger yep. for him and yep. sent him all the way over the edge. And he killed her and then was like, the reason I did that and the reason I'm in this situation is the ex-wife's fault to begin with. That's why this whole using my children you know, as a pawn mm-hmm. thing is happening. And so now I'm going to kill her too. So then you see him knock on the door, her open the door, and then she he, – and he said, this is the day. And you see her like kind of run, but at that point it's too what? late. Like she – yeah. <clears throat> so he killed both of them and then he, then he took his own life. Mm. I, I, it's it's a really horrible story because now you have these children who yeah you know are left with neither parent by the oh, ones yeah. with his ex-wife and then the i think the other ch- child likely died I'm, I'm not sure if the child lived that the, the one who was pregnant i'm not sure if that child lived but it's so much and i i, I wanted to know what your thoughts are on I, I guess like situations like that. I mean, like, why would he make? Why do you, I mean? Like you you didn't interview the man, but why would? Why do you think he would make a video like that? Mm. Clueless. I don't know. Silence. <laughs> <laughs> not watching. There's, I'm in disbelief right now. 
I don't know. I don't know. It's like, why do, you know, people leave suicide notes, you know, mm-hmm. it was a, a visual suicide note. Um, I don't know that it's just mind blowing. I I'm literally lost for words about the story. It's, it's really tragic. And, 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 and when I saw the video of him speaking, I mean, he didn't seem frazzled or he was speaking as calmly as I'm speaking to you right now. He was like, you know, this is what happened. I, I just killed my, my ex-girlfriend. He said, I can't believe I'm that guy. Um, he said when it was happening, it was like, it seemed surreal, like a mo- movie. Like like when I shot her, it sure. didn't seem real. So it almost was like he was having, like there were two parts of him. Yeah. You know, Sounds present. Like, like there was this mm-hmm. delusional, yep. violent, irrational part. And the other part of him kind of saying, hey, like, <laughs> that was kind of crazy what you did. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like a, I'm, I don't want to diagnose the man because I'm not classified to do so, trained to do so, but it seemed like I'm kind of personality disorder in a way like he was disassociating which you spoke to earlier you know what I mean like it just seemed really really broken yeah and that sounds like what you're describing if if the video the way it sounded uh and this is a diagnosis that kind of it used to be called multiple personality disorder um Mm -hmm. it's now referred to as dissociative identity disorder where kind of for people that have experienced extreme trauma, I would be interested in what he experiences as a child. Those who experience mm-hmm. extreme trauma, what happens with them is they don't their personalities don't split, but their identity, like who they are, they have different parts of themselves that kind of come apart. We all have different parts of ourselves, right? The part of me that shows up as a therapist is not the part of me that shows up at home as a mother or a wife, right? Right. So we all have different parts, but we're fully integrated into, you know, a cohesive Mm. person. When we experience a lot of trauma, especially in childhood, our identity gets fragmented. And so we have the protector, we have the child part of us, we have the rescuer. And so those these parts get fragmented and they all almost like they become different identities of us and how we present ourselves in different situations and different parts of uh, different, you know, parts of our lives. So mm-hmm. it sounds like with him describing that, I kind of want I kind of want to see the video. I kind of don't want to see the video. But um <laughs> It goes undiagnosed a lot. I've seen more clients that have this and it's not really diagnosed, but dissociative identity disorder where you really show up as one person and then in another situation, you show up as another part of yourself mm-hmm. that doesn't show up in these other situations. And it goes undiagnosed because it's so subtle. The changes can be so subtle. Mm-hmm. Um, like you said, when he said, oh, I don't even remember, I, that felt unreal. Sometimes mm-hmm. we don't. Those people don't even remember doing certain acts they did. People say, you don't remember when we X, Y, and Z? They're like, I did that? Another part of themselves showed up, and that part that's talking to you right now kind of literally shuts down. Getting kind of technical, but it's it's a really fascinating disorder, like fascinating and sad, but it's really fascinating when we look at different parts of ourselves. And some people are like, oh, that's crazy, multiple personality disorder. But no, we all have different parts of our identity. We're just fully integrated. Those who experience extreme trauma, it's a protective mechanism. Like I said, it changes the structure mm. of our brain. So our brain does this thing to protect itself. It's kind of a survival technique that happens. It, it, it's, it's reminiscent of um, <clears throat> someone else I know who was convicted of uh, murder. 
and um and was allegedly you know killed kill, kill a couple people but mm. was convicted of one and this is somebody i know i grew up with was friends with wow. um it was unbelievable like when i was got the phone call and he called me and was like i didn't do that but i believed him i was like oh of course not like you know it's somebody i know from church like <laughs> kill somebody wow. what are you talking about <laughs> and it was yeah. just unbelievable but as the evidence came out i was I couldn't believe it. I was like, what? The evidence was overwhelming. Like blood spatter in the apartment, like excessive blood in the sink, blood in the back of a truck that he had rented um, um, that matched the DNA of the person that was dead. Like it was a whole thing. Like it was. Did he yeah, have a history like, of trauma? Do you know? The trauma part is what I don't know. I do know he has a history of violence, which I found out. Like oh. hitting people in the head with liquor bottles and okay. dating someone else who ended up who came up dead. I guarantee you, he has a history of trauma. Has to. Um, I, 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 yeah, has to. But I wonder. I, I pose that because I raise that rather because I wonder when you talk about that when people say things like because you know we have like our kind of own phrases people use mm -hmm. when they don't understand, they don't know the medical terminology when people say, well, you know, the person blacked out or they just mm -hmm. saw, I just, when I get mad, I see red. Yes. <laughs> like, is that that's what that is? That's dissociation. It's not that disorder, but that's what it means to dissociate to when you have a blackout moment where you are not cognizant of what happened and after it happens, you're like, oh, I did that. Um, mm. Different from like somebody passing out, being drunk or doing something when you're drunk. But right. <laughs> but like where you have a blackout moment where like you just kind of snap almost, right? Like mm. remember the show Snapped on Lifetime? I don't know if I'm dating myself now, but um, <laughs> like those women literally had those moments of disassociation. Like they just come out of who they are in that moment and dissociate another part of themselves kind of comes up. Can people be, can people heal from that? Or is that like a, something just, ir, 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 you know, in, in, in change, unchangeable in the brain? You, you can heal from that. You definitely can. It takes a lot of work though. It takes a lot of work and it's harder because um, in therapy, it depends who shows up to therapy. What part am I talking to today? You know, that's why I don't <laughs> ask that. You, you, Ted, stop laughing. I'm serious. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> who am I talking to today? Which one of you? No, okay. okay. Okay, we're not going to be insensitive. Stop. <laughs> okay, yeah, you're right. Sorry. <laughs> Take it back. No, seriously, people show up and you have to ask, like, who's present today? And I know this, I'm probably getting way too, people are probably like, girl, what do you do for a living? But like, literally, I need to know who was showing up today. Who is here today? Yeah. What parts yeah. are here? Sometimes mm -hmm. multiple parts show up to the session. Sometimes the wow. part that you need to work with doesn't show up to the session because they're wow. like, I'm not doing this. And the other part is like, yeah, they're not coming out today because I'm protecting them. So it's mm. a lot of work that has to be done. Just think about, I had a client that, um, extreme like neglect in childhood parent would um leave them outside overnight um they would have to sleep under the truck at night um mm -hmm. they wouldn't have food for weeks they would have to kind of get scraps from different trash cans around the neighborhood they lived mm -hmm. in a very rural area so like houses were like a mile apart so it wasn't like mm -hmm. people had eyes on this this child um but extreme like just unimaginable abuse was abused by the stepfather sexually physically um had to be locked in closets like things like that where like 
it just it's unimaginable. So what happens, like I said, when a person experiences that extreme trauma, their identity, like they come into their different parts show up to protect themselves. So when they come into therapy now, I have to find out they don't they don't can't trust me. They don't know who I am from Adam. So their protector role shows up. That part shows yeah. up. The true person that I need to work on with the trauma with is not showing up to therapy. So I need to ask who is here today? What can we do to make Rachel feel safe enough to come to therapy today? Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of work that has to be done. You can heal from that. I believe that. And it's been shown that the brain does have the capacity to heal itself, but we have to be able to show up to do that. Um, Our brain is, uh, we have neuroplasticity in the brain, meaning just because we have trauma and it changes Mm -hmm. our brain, um, healing changes our brain in the same way. When we are in Mm -hmm. safe relationships, when Mm -hmm. we are in community, um, when we have restorative experiences, that helps shape our brain towards healing and it can change and repair as well. I love that. I want to. I want to wrap today, <clears throat> um, in a, in a moment of transparency, and just talk about uh, briefly. You know, the fact that I um, several months ago started therapy myself um, because I felt like it was important for me to have an objective, you know, voice, a trained professional <laughs> in my life to help me. And one of the confessions I made in the first session was why I hadn't gone to therapy prior to with all the things that I know about therapy and knowing my own personal, you know, trauma that I've contended with over my life. And I told my therapist that one of the, the, the reason I didn't go was because I'm so um, analytical and introspective. And I was kind of like, what are they going to tell me that I haven't already thought? Of? <laughs> I'm honest. Right. And I was right. like, I've, I've I've examined all the things I've gone through from, you know, relationship situations with, with, with all of those, whether the familial, uh, business, romantic, whatever they are, and the things that come with that and, you know, career things and just life, like all the things that have happened in life, yeah. things with my dad, et cetera. And after the first session, I talked to my therapist about the way that I processed in my relationship with my father and some other things. And she said something that made me feel, you know, good in a way. She said, Mr. Wynn, I, I will say this to you that you're right. And I was like, what do you mean? She said, you process things very well. And I was like, yay me. <laughs> right. But, but I do think I know that being in therapy is helping me yeah. more. Um, and I'm seeing things differently and I'm, understanding things about myself and I'm examining more things about myself and what I need to do and maybe, you know, behavioral changes or why I exhibited certain patterns, you know, in my life that maybe I didn't see as problematic, you know, before. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just, I just want to encourage every person, you know, to find the therapist who works for you. Yeah. Um, no matter how well you think you are, how okay you think you are, how much you think I don't have any issues, um, because you're probably the main one who needs to go actually, (laughs) um, and, and get in therapy because I think that we all need to be able to speak with someone. We all need to be able to hear, um, a rational, objective, Mm -hmm. professional voice, um, to give us guidance and to just help us be better and make sure to make sure that we are, um, as well as we can be in that moment. It's like, you know, yeah. the doctor, you know, going to the doctor, you do checkups and exams to make sure everything is okay. Yeah. You know? And, and so if it's not that we can, we can 
hopefully find it soon yeah. before it leads to other problems that, you know, and then one thing happens and then you have this exacerbation of things happening. Exactly. And I think that same thing happens with us mentally, you know? Yeah. So, and I would say, don't wait till you have a crisis to get in counseling, right? That's not the time we want to do that preventative work is so important. That way when a crisis does come, we feel more prepared to handle it. Um, and to your point about finding the right person, you the first therapist you go to may not be the one. So don't quit and say, oh, therapy doesn't work just because you had a bad experience right. <laughs> with the therapist. Um, just like you go to a bad barber and get a bad haircut. You don't say, oh, I don't believe in haircuts no more. Like, <laughs> I'm doing it myself. No, you go find a new barber. You add, get some more girls, ask your boys. You'd be like, yo, who, who cuts your hair? They looks good. Yes. With the therapist, because there are some terrible therapists out there. I'll be honest with you. We're not sure. all great. Like there are right. some ones that are not good, yeah. but you got to find one that you click with and one that works with you. So, yeah. I love that. So thank you so much uh, for joining us today on Perspective. Um, this has been a very rich, thoughtful conversation. Um so many sound bites. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> I love it. No, it's it's really good stuff. And I think that we have to normalize these conversations in general, but specifically in, in the black community and even more specifically in faith-based black communities. Like we really need to have yeah. conversations about, you know, mental health and on the other side of that mental illness. And we have to stop labeling things demonic yes. that are that are mental. Issues, issues of mental illness, because that just doesn't help. I saw somebody recently, I know I said I was rapping, I saw like a preacher, um, <laughs> talk about dating. And they said something like, you know, some of you are dating demons. And I'm just like, what are you even talking about? Like, okay. like mm -hmm. that is because it just doesn't, it's not helpful. First of all, it's dehumanizing to that person. Yeah. One. And you don't really deal with the real issues that that person has as a human being. If you just right. kind of lump them over in the demon pile, then we don't need, <laughs> we don't have to worry about them. We don't have to fix them. You know what I'm saying? We don't have to, we don't have to deal with the their actual pile. humanity. <laughs> deal with their actual humanity you know yeah. and that's and 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 even people who are abusers and people who are pedophiles and ephebophiles and people who enact these really horrible things on other humans still deserve to be treated i'm not saying they should there shouldn't be consequences or legal ramifications i'm not saying that but they still deserve to be treated because they are broken people Absolutely. and i often say if you are a person who is bleeding you're going to bleed on everybody who gets close to you. Mm -hmm. So you have to do your best to get the help you need to yeah. stop the bleeding. Yeah, that's good. So good. That's yeah. a whole other Thank podcast. You. Part two. Part two. <laughs> part dos. I don't know how to say part in Spanish. So just... <laughs> just stop. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but thank you, Brittany. Uh, you want thank any closing you. words from you? No, this has been awesome. Thank you so right. much. Perfect. Share this with people, um, your friends, your family, anybody you know. Um, and, and hopefully this has given you some insight. And you are, if you're not in therapy, you will begin looking for a therapist soon. I'm Ted Wynn with Perspective. We'll talk to you soon.